The first question this morning is, could Jesus come today? Are you ready? My mother, often 96, (laughs) still reminds me of the passage that says, when you see these things happening, look up, look up, because we are to be looking with expectancy for the return of Christ. That hope, that expectancy of every Christian is the second coming of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we are those who long for His appearing. Paul says in Titus 2, we are those who wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, We are waiting to be presented to Christ, Paul says in Ephesians, as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. We look forward to the day when we will be absent from the body and what? Present with the Lord. And John says in 1 John 3, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. The theme of the second coming fills the New Testament. And we look back to the cross where our souls were redeemed and transformed, but we look forward to the second coming where our bodies are going to be redeemed and transformed. And that we will enter into that fullness of our salvation. Paul says that we will be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. So we as Christians long for the day when Jesus comes back because that's when Satan will be defeated once and for all. His power totally broken. It's when the curse will be lifted. It's in that day that the saints will be glorified. Christ will be worshipped. The creation will be liberated. And that sin and death will be eliminated. Great day. And so we look forward to the second coming of Christ, and we're looking, we've been learning about a lot of fascinating things about the event um, here in chapter 24 of Matthew, the, the events that are going to be leading up to that. And it all started when the disciples asked Jesus what seemed to be a simple question, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And they got an earful. They got an earful as Jesus began to lay out for them all the things that were going to take place just before His return. And then He gave them the sign. The sign they were asking about in verse 30 of chapter 24. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. So they will see Him coming in all of His Shekinah glory on the clouds, as we mentioned, the chariot of God. They wanted a sign, and Jesus says, that's the sign. Jesus then gives them another parable here in Matthew 24, an everyday illustration that will help them put the when question into perspective. They wanted to know when all these things were going to take place. Now, Jesus has already given them a number of indicators of when this is going to happen, but if they are anything like, if they were anything like we are, I think their minds were kind of overwhelmed, a little bit boggled, blown away with all the events that Jesus was talking about. 
So Jesus simplifies things for them in Matthew 24. If you have your Bibles or your electronic device, you can turn to that. Matthew 24, verses 32 to 35. And he simplifies things for them by giving them a parable of the fig tree. He's done that a number of times. And we find that here in these three verses. Matthew 24, starting at verse 32. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree, he says. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So he starts out with this analogy. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. Remember that parables, parables had a twofold purpose. We've been looking at many of his parables through Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Parables unexplained hid the truth. This happened over and over again with the multitudes that were there listening to Jesus and with the uh, spiritual leaders of, of, the, uh, of the time. But parables explained... Make the truth clear. And when he gave it to the disciples, when he gave parables to the disciples, he always explained it. It was an illustration that made things that much more clear for them because it illustrated a simple truth. And I find it interesting that he said, Now learn this lesson. Learn this lesson. He wants this lesson to sink in, he wants them to really get the message. Listen up, he said. Take this seriously. Let this sink in and let it affect your life. Paul used the same word when in Philippians 4.11. He said, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. What he learned, he put into practice. He made it a part of his life. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, I want you to learn this and I want it to affect your life. He really wants them to understand it, to grasp it, not just let it go in one ear and out the other. It's so easy to do. Now, Jesus once again uses the fig tree as an example, and he's done that often. Here in the States, um, apple tree is usually our go-to illustration. Something can be as American as apple pie. Uh, Apple pie and ice cream is an all-American dessert. We say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, One one bad apple ruins a whole bunch. So we understand apples. They understood figs. And so Jesus says, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Okay, so far, so good. They they understood that illustration. When you see the leaves of the fig tree come out, you know that uh, spring is there and that summer is right around the corner. Um, Why is that important? Because summer means harvest time. It's time to harvest those figs. And as we've seen throughout the Gospel of Matthew, whenever Jesus speaks about the harvest... He's speaking about the time when he comes to separate the good from the bad. Judgment time. Harvest in the Gospel of Matthew speaks of judgment. It speaks of the Lord's coming to deal with the good and the bad. There are a number of examples uh, that you'll probably remember, but in, in Matthew 13, you'll remember that we say the parable of the wheat and the tares, or, and the weeds. And it says in verse 30, At the time of the harvest, I will tell the harvester, First collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. 
Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Then in verse 42, he explains to his disciples that he will send his angels and they will throw them, the weeds, representing the wicked, he will throw them into the blazing furnace, uh, verse 42 says, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Harvest time. So what Jesus is saying is very simple in this uncomplicated analogy. When you see the leaves come forth in the spring, you know that the coming of summer is near, which means harvest is right around the corner. And since he's been talking about the signs of the judgment, about the, the coming judgment, the coming at his second coming, they would understand the harvest to be the second coming and what was going to take place, the coming of God's judgment. But just to make sure they got it, he says then in the next verse in 33, even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. He's referring back to all the events that he described as the birth pains from verses 4 through 14. He's referring to the trigger that sets it all off, the abomination that causes desolation when the Antichrist comes in and sets himself up and an idol of him is set up in the temple of Jerusalem and the need to flee to the mountains because of the great tribulation that's coming. So what he's saying is when you see all these things, when you see all the birth pains and all the signs taking place and the ultimate sign of the Son of Man in heaven, know that it is near, so near it's knocking at the door. It's right around the corner. And then in verse 34, he says, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now what generation is he talking about? saying this generation, the disciples are standing there right in front of him. Well, certainly it can't refer to the disciples and their generation. They passed away thousands, uh, hundreds of years ago, a couple thousand years ago. He's got to be referring to the generation of people who are going to be there to see all of those things that he's been describing throughout chapter 24. Remember back in verse 6, he said, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Verse 9, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. We called that the prophetic you. You of that generation that's going to be there, that's going to be experiencing that. This generation that sees all those things will not end, Jesus is saying, until those things have all happened. So it's all going to take place in a short amount of time, within a generation amount of time. Now, here's the question of the day. Who's going to be a part of that generation? Is a church going to be there? Or will we be gone? This is the whole question about the rapture. I've been promising that we're going to be talking about this, so this is the opportune time, talking about the generation that will be there or not. This is a debate. The, the, the topic of the rapture has been a debate that has raged over the centuries. And there are basically three views about when the rapture will take place. There's a pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib. Pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation. In the pre-tribulation rapture, the church will be raptured, taken to be with Jesus before the set, that seven-year period. Mid-tribulation rapture is the church will be raptured at the three-and-a-half-year point, right in the middle, when the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple of Jerusalem. 
post-tribulation, the church will go through all the horrible things that Jesus has just described in Matthew 24. And the concept of the rapture basically becomes null and void. And you've got the second coming. Where's the hope in that? At some point, if you want to, you can do a self-study on the latter two views. Okay, I'm not, I'm not doing a, a three-view study here. But I want to share with you this morning why I believe that we'll be taken out before the seven-year tribulation period and why the rapture and the second coming are two separate events. The rapture is one of the greatest promises that Jesus has given to his church. <clears throat> when the Apostle Paul describes it in detail in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, and we'll get to those verses in a moment, he concludes his description in verse 18 by saying, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another. Why is the concept of the rapture comforting? Because we won't have to endure all those horrible holocaustic things that are going to take place. We won't have to go through the horrible persecution and death that Jesus describes. We won't have to experience an evil unleashed like we've never seen before in the history of the world. Now let me share with you where we find the rapture in Scripture. Now remember, the rapture refers to the imminent return of Christ. We're talking about the fact that Jesus could come at any moment. Could come tonight, could come tomorrow morning. In fact, we have that in our statement of faith. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is imminent. The first passage, and perhaps the clearest, is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. The believers there in Thessalonica were, were really very concerned about their loved ones who had died and been buried. And their, their worry was that, you know, if Jesus is going to come back, what, what's going to happen to the people that have already died? Are, are they going to be able to go to heaven or are they, are they lost forever? And this is what Paul's response to them was in, in that passage. Starting with verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, those who have, been, have died and are buried, so that you will not grieve as indeed the rest of mankind do who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, so also God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, through Jesus. For we say this to you by the word of the Lord. This is a direct revelation from, from the Lord uh, to, to Paul that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who remain, listen, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That is a classic definition of the rapture. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, he says, comfort one another with these words. What amazing word of comfort that is. And the word that's used for being caught up is a word harpazo. It's a Greek word harpazo. Dr. David Jeremiah explains harpazo this way. He kind of gives four, four definitions. Harpazo can mean to carry off by force, 
He says, Christ will use his power to remove living and deceased believers from the last enemy, death. Harpazo can mean to claim for oneself eagerly. Christ purchased us with his blood and he will return to claim those who are his as well. So both of those meanings work. Third, harpazo can mean to snatch away speedily. Again, the rapture will occur in the twinkling of an eye. Fourth, harpazo can mean to rescue from the danger of destruction. This meaning uh, supports the idea that the rapture will save the church from experiencing the terrors of the seven-year tribulation. So any way you look at that word, it's the catching away of believers. Now, we're going to come back to that word in just a moment, but I wanted to look at something else first. There are only two detailed descriptions of the Lord's actual return in the New Testament. One is here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which we just read, and the other is in Revelation chapter 19. What we've been studying in Matthew 24 are the events or the signs leading up to the return. Now, there's no doubt that the one in the description in Revelation is a description of the second coming. But when we compare it with the description of 1 Thessalonians 4, there seems to be a problem if you're saying this is the same event because. The problem is that the two have nothing in common. The two descriptions have nothing in common, except that it's about Jesus. Let me illustrate this with a side-by-side chart. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Jesus appears in the heavens. Revelation 19, Jesus returns to the earth. 1 Thessalonians 4, Jesus appears for his church. Revelation 19, Jesus returns with his church. 1 Thessalonians 4, Jesus appears as a deliverer. Revelation 19, Jesus returns as a warrior. 1 Thessalonians 4, Jesus appears in grace. Revelation 19, Jesus returns in wrath. 1 Thessalonians 4, Jesus appears as a bridegroom. Revelation 9, Jesus returns as king of kings. How can these two passages be describing the same event? Even if we compare what we've just studied in Matthew 24 with the passage of 1 Thessalonians 4, the rapture is always pictured as an imminent event, something that could occur at any moment. Whereas in Matthew 24, Jesus said His second coming will happen following many signs that will point to that event. At the rapture, Jesus gathers His followers. The second coming here in Matthew 24, the angels gather those excuse me, gather those who have come to Christ during the tribulation time. In Matthew, Jesus says that His second coming will be announced by supernatural phenomena in heaven. The sun's going to go dark. Stars are going to fall out of place. Nothing like this is mentioned in the rapture passage. Well, what if we compare the rapture passage in 1 Thessalonians with the Old Testament? Well, again, if we look at Zechariah chapter 14, we've touched there a few times we'll see a huge difference. Listen, Zechariah 14, starting at verse 1, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoils taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be taken, the houses plundered, the the women raped, and half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be eliminated from the city. 
Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when He fights on the day of battle. And on that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west, forming a very large valley. Half of the mountain will move toward the north, the other uh, half toward the south. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be the only one. His name will be the only one. Zechariah goes on in verse 12 that Jesus will conquer all the enemies. Verse 12, now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone uh, to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouth. What a horrible description that is. Quite a description, though. With that in mind, let's take a look at what Jesus says in John chapter 4. These are verses that Nancy read earlier this morning. Do not let your heart be troubled. My heart be troubled if I'm going to have to go through some of those things that Zechariah is talking about or Revelation is talking about or Matthew is talking about. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house have, are, In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you because I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again to what? Take you to myself so that where I am, there you will be. Quite a contrast. Zechariah, Jesus comes to earth in wrath and judgment to reign in his new kingdom. In John 14, Jesus appears in the heavens in grace to take people back to heaven where he's prepared a place for them. I want to do a little bit of Q&A this morning. Q&A with questions that are most often asked about the rapture. Number one, is the word rapture even in the Bible? Are being caught up to be with the Lord is commonly called the rapture. But the word rapture, is it really in the Bible? Yes and no. Let me explain. The specific word rapture, the English word rapture, is not in most English translations of the Bible. But apparently, it is found in the Italian Bible and, from what I understand, the Romanian Bible. The word rapture is derived from the Latin Vulgate Bible, a translation. It was translated from the Greek word harpazo. That's the word we talked about a little bit earlier. Meaning to openly, forcefully take up or openly and suddenly catch away. The English word harpoon... (laughs) actually has some basis in that Greek word as well. Now, as as you know, we get a lot of our words from the Latin. Uh, So that's the version, um, that's the reason why it's important to consider the Latin Vulgate Bible. Not vulgar, just Latin Vulgate Bible. And how harpazo has come to mean the word rapture that we use today. The Latin Vulgate Bible is a version of the Bible that's been used for 1,600 years, which is the longest of all the versions of the Bible. It was translated from early manuscripts by a name of, and I'm probably going to mess this up, Eusebius Sophronius Hieronymus, which is, he is now known as St. Jerome. A whole lot easier. So St. Jerome, 
translated this. He translated the various forms and tenses of the original Greek word harpazo into various forms and tenses of the Latin word rapio. Rapio. All the words, no matter what language, mean the same thing. To be openly and suddenly caught away, plucked up, snatched, or seized. We find such forms and tenses of the Latin uh, word rapio as rapere, rapui, raptus, raptiro. I may not be pronouncing all those correctly. And when those forms and tenses are translated into English, we get the words like rapt, rapture, rapturous, raptor, etc. But the accuracy of the original meaning is what matters most here in the translation. So it really doesn't matter whether someone says caught up or caught away, or if they use the word raptured, snatched away, taken up, plucked out, or taken by force, because it all means the same thing. A very sudden, open, forceful, decisive seizure of something, and in our case, the church of Jesus Christ being caught up to the Lord. Harpazo refers to the rapture. Second question, what about the timing of the rapture? When is it most likely to occur? Oh, this is probably the most frequently asked question and one of the most controversial uh, ones. And the reason is because the Bible doesn't specifically reveal the timing of the rapture. One author honestly said that all positions on the timing must be based on inferences. And that's why there is so much debate. So, what are we talking about when it comes to the pre-tribulation rapture? First of all, we've got the concept of the deliverance from wrath. We've seen in our study thus far that the tribulation is time of the pouring out of God's wrath from the beginning to the end, and the Christians are promised immunity from the wrath of God. The Apostle Paul stresses this point in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. He declares that believers are waiting for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. He rescues us from the wrath to come. He makes a similar statement in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, where he emphasizes that God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says the same thing in his letter that he dictated to John to give to the church in Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. He promised that the church would be kept from the time of tribulation. Listen, because you have kept my word of perseverance, Jesus said, I also will keep you from the hour of the testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. And keep you from that. Then we've got the focus of the tribulation. Now this is important and and I think often missed. Listen, there is no purpose for the church in the tribulation. Because the focus of the entire seven-year period is on the Jewish people. Remember that at the end of uh, chapter 23, as we were going through that, when Jesus was leaving the temple area, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who have been sent to her. How often have I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Your house, no longer my house, your house. 
Your house is being left to you. God left His temple and His people because of their rebellion and their refusal to receive Jesus as the Messiah. Your house is being left to you desolate. That's why the Antichrist can swoop in and set himself up as God. And Jesus called that the abomination that causes desolation. Then he says in verse 39, For I say to you, Israel, from now on you, Israel, will not see me until you, Israel, say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the focus of the tribulation. To come back and give His people one more opportunity to call out, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, there is no purpose for the church here on earth during the tribulation. What's the church's purpose now? To go and make disciples of all nations, right? Even that responsibility is going to be given to two witnesses that we read about in Revelation 11.3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, seven years, clothed in sackcloth. And then the final preaching of the Gospel will be done by an angel. It's, we read about in Revelation 14.6. And I saw another angel flying in midheaven with an eternal Gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation, tribe, language, and people. The church is no longer going to be going and making disciples of all nations. The third is this, the emphasis on the imminency. The imminency of His return. This may be the most important inference, and only the pre-tribulation view really has, has, uh, allows for the rapture. The imminency of it. We are told over and over again in the New Testament that the Lord's return is imminent. And that we should live looking for it to occur at any moment. Luke 12, you too be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not think He will. Paul says in Romans 13, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day is near. He says in Philippians 3, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Titus 2, we are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And James says, You too, be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. From these verses, we have to live our lives with, as one author uh, mentioned, an eternal perspective, with an eternal perspective, expecting the Lord to come at any moment. These verses have got to be talking about the rapture and not the second coming for a couple reasons. One, the second coming is not an imminent event. The seven years of tribulation precede the second coming. Seven years is not imminent. The Antichrist must be revealed. The mark of the beast must be instituted. The abomination that causes desolation must take place in the temple in Jerusalem. And all the signs that Jesus talked about in the beginning of Matthew 24 must first take place. Secondly, the date of the second coming can be fairly precisely calculated in Revelation 11, 3 and 12, 6, as well as other Old Testament books, the second coming will occur 1,260 days after the tribulation begins. 
Based on biblical examples, God always, excuse me, it shows us that the imminency then is not there, if you can calculate that out. Uh, the fourth inference is biblical examples. Based on the biblical examples, God always removes his elect before he pours out his judgment or his apocalyptic wrath. The Apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2, verses 4-9, to that if God spared Noah and his family from the flood then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from a trial, as quoted, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Now let me give you a few examples from the Old Testament. We've got Enoch, we've got Lot and his family, and we've got Rahab, just to name a few, uh, three of them. Enoch, who, by the way, was a Gentile, which is very interesting in this situation, seems to be symbolic of the church Enoch was taken out of the world before the flood, whereas Noah and his family, symbolic of the Jews, had to persevere through the flood and were saved at the end. Do you remember how Enoch died? He didn't. He was basically raptured. (laughs) He was taken away. Verse 25 says, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Another example is the removal of Lot and his family who were moved from Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that story before the cities were destroyed in Genesis 19. In fact, in verse 22, it tells us in that same chapter that Lot was even told to hurry up and leave because God couldn't destroy the cities until they left. Then there was Rahab, the harlot in Jericho, who provided refuge for the Jewish spies who were, who were sent to scout that city. We're told in Joshua 6, verse 22, that God arranged for her and all of her family to be removed from the city before Joshua and his army came in and conquered it. I think these are all examples that make it clear why we are never told to watch for the Antichrist. Who are we told to watch for? We're told to watch for Jesus Christ. Third question. Is the rapture mentioned in the book of Revelation? And if so, where? Well, again, it's not specifically mentioned, but again, it is definitely inferred. If you've read Revelation, you remember that its focus on the church uh, is on is in the first three chapters. In fact, chapter two and three contain seven letters that Jesus dictated to the Apostle John to, to give to the churches, addressed to those seven churches located in modern day Turkey. But then at the beginning of chapter 4, a door in heaven is opened and the Apostle John is caught up to the throne room of God where he is shown a preview of the Great Tribulation. And after chapter 4, there is no mention of the church in the book of Revelation until chapter 19 that we looked at last time where we read about the church as a bride of Christ. What, what was the church doing? They were celebrating its union with its bridegroom, Jesus himself, in heaven at the marriage feast of the Lamb. They were already there. The church was already there. This is the end. That's at the end of the tribulation, which, uh, after which Jesus returns with his second coming, and he brings his bridegroom with him riding on the white horses. We talked about that. Question number four. Is there any mention of the rapture elsewhere in the New Testament? 
Yes, we see Paul talking about it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. He starts out in verse 1 saying, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, regarding the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. Then he says in verse 3, No one is to deceive you in any way, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Who's the man of lawlessness? Talking about the Antichrist. Now, if we were to condense verse 1 and verse 3, Paul is saying the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him will not come unless the apostasy comes first. So our understanding of this verse hinges on the word apostasy. What does apostasy mean? Well, I think the first thing that comes to our mind is a departure from the truth. The abandonment of, or the willful falling away from the faith, turning your back on your faith. That's how we normally would consider that. However, the word apostasia in Greek, apostasy, without any qualifiers, simply means departure. That's fascinating to me. Because Paul gives no qualifiers here in these verses. He doesn't say departure from the faith, departure from the church, departure from Jesus. He simply says the departure. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him will not come unless the departure comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's the Antichrist. When is He revealed? At the beginning of the seven-year period of tribulation. The other grammatical detail that should probably be mentioned is that Paul used the definite article, the, the departure. So I believe, according to Paul, the departure, the rapture must come first before the other events take place. Question number five. Will the rapture mark the beginning of the tribulation? Well, to answer that, let's just say the Bible doesn't state anywhere that the tribulation period begins immediately with the rapture. I believe, however, it's pretty safe to say that the tribulation period is likely to start shortly after the rapture, whether it be days, months, a couple years, we don't know, because the tribulation is a time of the outpouring of God's wrath. And in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, it says that Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. Another reason for believing the rapture will probably happen near the beginning of the tribulation because 2 Thessalonians 2 says, He who now restrains will do so until he is removed. Then that lawless one will be revealed. Again, who is he who now restrains? I believe that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit working through the church. So when the church is removed, the Antichrist will be unleashed and the tribulation will begin. One last question. Why is it important for us to believe in the rapture of the church? Why is it important to believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ? Because it should transform the way we live. It should transform the way we live, knowing that Jesus really is going to return and that it could occur at any moment. It might be this afternoon, in the middle of a football game that you might be watching. 
This truth, if we really understand it and take it, take it to heart, should motivate us to, to live a life with a sense of imminency, a sense of expectancy, a sense of urgency. As one commentator put it, it promotes living with an exter- eternal perspective. A genuine belief in the pre-tribulation rapture should motivate holiness and evangelism. It'll motivate holiness because knowing Christ could return tonight or tomorrow morning should motivate us to keep our house in order, to live a life pleasing to the Lord, to ask the Lord to search our heart to see if there's anything displeasing uh, to Him and ask Him to purify us. It will or it should motivate us to evangelism, sharing the love of Christ with those that are around us because our neighbor may be left behind to face the horrible wrath. That's coming because of their willful disobedience and rebellion. The other thing that believing in the rapture does for us is that it provides incredible hope. Incredible hope. Adrian Rogers, uh, Reverend, who served as president of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, died not too long ago, 2005, once stated, the world is growing gloriously dark. Kind of a strange statement. The world is growing gloriously dark. He was looking on it as a, in a positive light in that it is glorious because the increasing darkness points to the end of the end times. Christ is coming soon. Indicates that the rapture is closer than ever before. In a similar way, way Jan Markell, founder of Olive Tree Ministries, often says the world is not falling to pieces. Rather, the pieces are all falling into place. So the greatest question of the morning is this. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready to go with the Lord's raptured people to be in His presence? Or will you find yourself staying for the Holocaust that follows? Peter says, since everything will be... Peter, in 2 Peter 3, verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. We ought to be looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and living accordingly. We ought to be growing in grace. We are, folks, a redeemed people looking for the Savior. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, this morning we thank you for the promise in your word that, that you're, you're, you're going to come and take us away. We are not destined for your wrath. But at the same time, you've given us a huge responsibility. Number one, for our own lives, we need to make sure that our, our, our accounts are caught up. That if we're living a life that is just kind of going along on a, a, a daily basis in our Christian life, kind of, okay, yeah, whenever we need to realize that Jesus could come back at any moment. And that we need to ask you to 
purify us and be living in that constant mode of transformation as your Holy Spirit lives and works in us. But Father, it also should give us that sense of uh, urgency to, to share your word, to share your hope, to share your, the, the expectancy of this coming of Jesus Christ, to share the promise of the salvation to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to others in our community. Father, I pray that you put that sense in, in us. Draw us close to you and then allow us, not allow us, help us to make that decision just to get out and share Jesus with others. Father, we have the victory in you and we, we look forward to Christ's coming. In Jesus' name, amen.